General Baptist Ministries has been called by God to exist for the church. We are not here so General Baptist can help us do ministry. We are here to help the church do ministry and fulfill its commission to make disciples of all nations and preach the good news to every man, woman, boy, and girl. We partner with General Baptist churches because we believe that we can do more together than any one person or church can do alone. I'm Danny Donovan, president of General Baptist Ministries, and I want to welcome you to this episode of Doing Together. Doing Together is a podcast that shares the ways that General Baptists partner together so that the church can fulfill its calling. I'm excited for this episode. In November 2021, General Baptist Ministries hired a new vice president, Travis Stevens, for a brand new ministry that we're launching here in 2022. The new ministry is called Church Revitalization. Besides working with General Baptist Ministries, Travis serves as the executive pastor of Strong Tower Church in Westmoreland, Tennessee, and we are blessed to have him on the team. Travis has hit the ground running, and we're making plans and developing programming that will help our churches to be healthier in the future than they are today. In today's podcast, Travis will be interviewing a pastor who is seeing revitalization in his church. Pastor Jason Baugh is at Centerpoint Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee. Let's listen into their conversation. Welcome to the Doing Together podcast. My name is Travis Stevens, and I'm the Vice President of Church Revitalization for General Baptist Ministries, and I want to say thanks so much for joining us today. With me today is a fellow pastor, a new friend of mine. His name is Jason Baugh. Jason, thanks so much for joining us today. We're going to be talking about church revitalization, and a lot of times I get asked, like, well, what is church revitalization? What do you even mean by that? And I think the easiest way that I've thought about um, just kind of defining it is uh, I want to come along and help churches, um, and we as General Baptists, we want to come along and help churches accomplish the mission that God has given them. That's the easiest thing. It's easy for churches to get stuck. We know that many of them in America right now, I think it's over 80% are kind of stuck in a maintenance mode or even worse. And so we just want to come alongside and say, hey, here's some things that we could do that we're going to help you accomplish the mission. And the mission, I believe, is uh, God has given us, that Jesus has given us. He set forth, right? It's the great commission that we're supposed to go into all the world. We're supposed to be making disciples. We're supposed to be baptizing people in the name of um you know, in the name of Jesus. And so uh, that's what we want to help do. And that's why I'm so excited. Uh, I know this is like episode three or four. Uh, and they said, hey, we want you to come on and talk about church revitalization. And so um, I've never got to meet you, Jason, but I've heard lots of stories about you. And they said, hey, if you're going to be talking about church revitalization, you should talk to Jason because he's somebody who we believe is doing it well within our denomination. So uh, before we sort of get into that story, I would like for you to take maybe just you know, a minute or two, and just tell me about your sort of journey of faith, uh, and then that led you into sort of uh, getting into ministry. Yeah, what an honor it is to be here. Any kind of value I can add to this project, uh, I'll do my best. You get what you pay for, ultimately. <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, I, first and foremost, I'm just a regular guy. I'm a normal guy who is just minding my own business along the career path I wanted and made the mistake of praying about, God, what do you want in my life? And I say that tongue in cheek, but the Bible is full of men and women that are just people from places. I think about how we first are introduced to Elijah. He says he's a Tishbite from Tishbe, mm-hmm. which is the Bible's way of saying he's just a dude from a place. So I'm just a guy from a place. And I was a public school history teacher for 10 years and volunteering at my local church in the middle school ministry and just kind of loving life. I was loving working 180 days a year and just being home by 3.30 every day. And they made an announcement at our church from the stage that they were indefinitely shutting down middle school ministries on Wednesday nights because they couldn't have enough adults who were going to volunteer for the ministry. And my wife is just digging her elbow in my side the whole time. I tell her to mind her own business. Just kidding. I don't, I like to be married, but I was like, (laughs) come on, man. Like, where are you going to serve? Why are you telling me what to do? And I, so we just started serving and they, you know, offered a job early on. If I'd be interested, I said, no, three, four times, which is normally how it works. And I ended up taking the job, but I told them not to pay me. I was just going to do it part-time pro bono. I'll just help out on Wednesday nights and fast forward five years later. And, and here I am moving to Hendersonville in the middle of COVID 
and coming to pastor a church. And so it's not exactly the journey I was expecting and it hasn't been easy, but it's been worth it. So that's it in a nutshell. Uh, that's a, that's awesome. You went so you went from working 180 days a year to working 52 days a year. Most people don't get to do that, right? Uh, so that's 52 that's, days a year. 52 no, days I wish. a year. 52 just weeks a year. No, just on Sunday, right? Because oh, yeah, that's what yeah, people think pastor. that pastors yeah. work. Oh yes. yeah, you just get to work Absolutely. one day a week, two hours a week. That's all. That's all we do. That's right. I was like, man, Travis, your your math is terrible. <laughs> I get it now. Yeah, 52 days. All right, so you're in Cookville, Tennessee. Um, you're at a very successful church, what's what we would call it. You're in a, a growing area. The church is growing. The church is going well. You're doing great in ministry. Your family, they love the area. Um, they love being there, I'm sure. And so in this church contacts you from Hendersonville, Tennessee, Centerpoint Church, right? They contact you and just ask, hey, would you be willing to come? What would you would you want to try out to be the pastor here at the church? Um, how do you feel about that? Like, walk me through sort of that decision-making process because going from a successful church that's doing well, that you're com- a place that you're comfortable, right, to uh, a place that's, that you don't know, you're not familiar with the community, you're uprooting your whole family, you, um, and, and it's a church that's, um, I mean, it's struggling. And so sort of walk me through that process and what that looked like and how you made that decision. Yeah, so they uh, reached out to me, and I, man, I was happy where I was. I was moving up the flow chart and had an associate pastor, multi-site campus, uh, just very successful church. And, man, (laughs) uprooting in the middle of COVID and moving to a city where I didn't know anybody, then go from, you know, preaching in front of 5,000 people to a church that had about 28 people in it total uh, wasn't exactly ideal. And so I declined multiple times. The second time I said, hey, I'll, I'll come preach for you, you know, once a month on a Sunday while you're in this search for a pastor. But that's it. And it seemed like every time I received another email from Centerpoint Church asking, are you sure? Because we're ready to move on, but we still think it might be you. The timing of it was always unbelievable. And we could go into a whole episode just about how God uses that. But my prayer for a long time has been, God, just give me eyes to see what's in front of me and what you want me to do. We think God's will is like some mysterious thing that's in this secret code that we have to get the decoder ring out of the Cracker Jack box or the Rosetta Stone so we can unlock God's will for our life. But oftentimes it's just right there in front of you. You just got to have eyes to see it and a heart that is willing. And I didn't have either of those at that time. So every time I got an email, it was always lined up with something. And I went on their website, worst website I've ever seen. No offense to whoever put that together, but it was terrible. And it was, you know, broken links and there's no staff members and there's all of these things. And I thought, Lord, this is surely not what you have for me. Please, it's not. And so I ended up going to five different people. And this is so important for all of us to understand and to really lean into. I had five different people in my life that I knew had a relationship with the Holy Spirit and that were invested in my family. One was my grandma, uh, one was my pastor, and then one was my wife. And then there was three others or two others that are in different ministries at different churches. And I asked them, would you for the next 48 hours fast and pray specifically that God would either shut this door or line it up? And I told God, if one person out of the five says, eh, I'm not exactly sure, that would be my out. And man, all five came back and said, yes, this is the will of God. You're supposed to go. And I was like, gum," which is like a Christian curse word. Man, at least in the South. Dadgum, it's, I got a terrible feeling I'm moving to Hendersonville, Tennessee. And so that's a very long story in a short amount of time. Right. But I think you have to have eyes to see it. See, the kingdom of heaven is an upside down kingdom. You know this. And so in the business world, we are programmed, especially I think as men, that we have to be moving up this food chain and up this ladder and you got to be making more money and you got to be more prestigious. I thought my first place being a lead pastor, at least be a thousand people, right? <laughs> but it's an upside down kingdom. I don't think God cares about the new, the numbers nearly as much as he cares about, are you faithful? 
I think we're going to be held accountable for, are we faithful with what he's put in front of us? For some people, faithfulness might look like just being the man or woman raising your kids. It may be pastoring a church of 30 people, 30,000 people, just being a light in your world, wherever you work. That may be what God has in front of you. So I don't think our inheritance is going to be based upon what other people are doing. I think it's going to be based upon, are you faithful with God, what God's put in front of you? And that's the kind of the, the journey that we've been on. But we normally when we talk about that faithful scripture, we say, hey, if you're faithful in, in the small things, God's going to give you like bigger things and bigger opportunities. But it was on, it was the opposite, basically, for you. It was like you're in this bigger setting, but now you're going to go to a smaller setting. Um, and so, yeah, it could almost be seen like like you took a demotion almost. I, I mean, that's how you would almost see it in the business well, sense. I made less money, for <laughs> sure. Much, much less audience. I'm preaching on Sunday morning now, and I'm vacuuming on Monday morning. Right. Where before the previous church, we had four full-time HR people. Yeah. And and, and now it's me, you know, walking in this building. So it wasn't what I had in mind, but it was very clear that it was what God put in front of me. And was I willing to make the sacrifice on lots of levels if it's what he asked me to do? And ultimately, it became so obvious that it would have been disobedience for me to say no. Yeah. And so you began at the church, I believe it was uh, July of 2020. Uh, you told me we, we got to talk last week a little bit. It's in the middle of the COVID pandemic, right? Not an ideal time to be uh, starting a church or trying to revitalize a church, obviously. Uh, and I believe you had told me that um, when you started the church, you said around 30 people were there, maybe $3,000 in the bank. They were, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you said they're like $750,000 in debt at the church. And so... Um, not the best spot. Most people aren't walking into that, right? Excited about walking into that. But you came into that situation, like how did you make the best of that situation? And what are some things that you did sort of early on um, once you got there that you feel like that kind of set a foundation that you could then start building upon? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and here it is, is I prayed to God these, these are da- they're dangerous prayers. Sometimes we got to be a little more careful because my mouth wrote a check that I didn't want to cash when, when, when God took it to the bank. But early on, when I was transitioning out of education into ministry, that was also a sacrifice. I was making a lot less money. I was going to be working six days a week. And my wife was pregnant with our second child. And so to take a $25,000 pay cut overnight, that was a, a sacrifice. But that was a few years ago. And I said the prayer to God, if I'm going to do this, don't call me to be a missionary in Hawaii. No offense for those two are in Hawaii, but if I'm going to do this, like God put me where no one else wants to go, put me where I have an opportunity to do the hard things. I can, the heaven's going to be easy. So I'm going to ask that you, you can put me in the tough spots here on earth. And that was a dangerous prayer. There's been lots of days where I've regretted that because God has, has held me to that. You know, and and so this was no different. And so in some weird way, I felt like I was equipped to come to the task of, of what needed to be done here. I felt like God had given me skills that even during the years of my life where my heart was far from him and my pride prevented him from using me, he was still sharpening these skills. So if I can just throw this because, you know, I have a pastor. Let me, let me throw this into a, a Bible reference for a moment. When David was with the sheep, he was still practicing the harp. And so he got sent to the palace for the very first time because he had been good at playing the harp. And that's why he was there. So his very first time in what was going to be his throne room, it was there because he was excellent at playing the harp. And I felt like even during my time of teaching and my time in, you know, spiritual exile, so to speak, that God was still sharpening these skills that one day when I finally submitted my pride to him, he would be able to use it. And so in some weird way at center point, they needed somebody who could do the finances that was gifted in money that had, you know, discernment that could preach, that could wear a lot of different hats. And I really felt like God kind of had equipped me for it. I wish he didn't, but he did And on this journey as well, I'd be remiss if we didn't bring this up. God has done a work in me as well. I mean, it was not easy to go from a church where you had two full-time assistants to it's just you, and now I'm scrubbing toilets. I mean, my first time ever cleaning a toilet in a church was when I was a lead pastor. 
then if I could be real honest, I thought I was above that. I thought I had paid my dues. And so there were all of these little pockets of pride in me that I didn't know existed, that during the first six months I was here, when I would study for hours and I would preach a sermon for 25 adults, and God would really ask me, is it worth it? Is it worth it if one person shows up and you give them the word of God or the word that I've given you for them? And if the answer is no to that, then what number is worth it? Because one person was worth Jesus dying on the cross. So are you above cleaning the toilet at a church? And the answer is no. And so it hasn't been an easy journey, Travis, but it's been worth it. Jesus never promised us that things would be easy. He just said things would be better. Yeah. And so that's just the journey that I have been on. What was your second part of your question? <laughs> yeah, what are a couple of things that you did? And I think part of that answer probably is just sort of leading by example, being the lead pastor who's willing to scrub the toilet, right? But I was asking, like, what are a couple of things that maybe you did early on that kind of set the foundation that, that you could build upon and then you could strengthen the church upon? So uh, two things stick out that were very specific. The first thing is, is I had to create a healthy culture. The culture had become unhealthy and because only healthy things grow. So step one, get everybody healthy. So I spent the first three months here being faithful over the very few people that were here. So I got to know them, got to know their children, went to their house, had them at my house. And on Sundays that I had off, that I wasn't preaching, I didn't go take those as my vacation days. I went and served in the children's ministry and the nursery on those Sundays off. And our, and our people in our congregation saw that. And so what they saw is that this guy is setting the example of what it's like to serve, what it's like to be in the trenches. It doesn't just happen on stage. And that was, was huge early on. And the second thing, if I can be just financial for a moment, because I tell people all the time, salvation is free, but ministry is expensive. <laughs> you can steal that. But, but I, uh, I, I decided, I took a look at our books and thought, we're not giving enough money away. See, what we had become was the Dead Sea. And I think God wants churches to be the Sea of Galilee. And so the Dead Sea just takes and takes and takes. It has no outlets. When I, I floated in the Dead Sea a couple of years ago, and we went down there. I, I floated in, in like, you know, like three feet deep water. But there is nothing outside of two hotels that are there just for the tourists for the Dead Sea. There's no land. There's no vegetation. There's land, but there's no vegetation, no livable land, no people, no houses, nothing there. Because all it's done is take, take, take. And what it has done is, is all of the area around it is desolate. Whereas if you flip over to the Sea of Galilee that has all kinds of outlets, it provides fish and economy and a community and gives life to the area all around it. So when I look at our, looked at our budget, we weren't giving any money away. And it's because we didn't have very much money. So it's the tendency of we don't have any, we can't afford to give it away. But it's the same concept of tithing. People say, I can't start tithing because we can't afford it right now. And people like you and I that have tithed for a long time are like, dude, you can't not afford to do this right now. Your money is not blessed by God, and it's obvious. So now's the time. So we started just giving money away. We had $3,000 to our name, and I said, hey, y'all, let's be like George Strait. Just give it away. And so we increased our budget, and we let another local church that was without a building that got kicked out of their school because of COVID. We let them use our building absolutely free on Sunday nights to have their own church service, which is very unconventional. And we started increasing the amount of money that we were giving away. So those two things, I I need to create a healthy culture because healthy things grow, and then I needed God's favor to be on our finances. And so I sowed into other ministries and other churches and other pastors and we did those things. And right around then is when things started kind of kicking in the right direction. Yeah. I think um, one of the biggest things that's, um, and it's always, it always comes back to people, right? Uh, with it, Within ministry, like the thing that's always, it seems to be holding us back sometimes is people. And the thing we always need is people. And um, so, so if you're going to take a church from that's unhealthy, that's struggling to grow, um, not seeing, you know, salvations and baptisms aren't happening. If you're going to take that and uh, grow it into something healthy, you need buy-in from the people. So what are some ways that maybe you went about doing that of trying to get buy-in? Because, um, you know, people are hard to lead sometimes and people, they get used to 
um, this is how we've always done it or, or, you know, or all of those type of things. And so what are some, how did you sort of change mindsets and how did you get buy-in? And, and did you say, I need to get buy-in from this group of people or these couple of people because they influence others? What did that look like for you? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So as anybody who's been in ministry knows, pastoring people is hard because sheep bite. And so sometimes you, you got, that's just part of it. Anybody who's been in ministry for more than one day knows that sometimes it's tough. Here's, here's what I did is the very first thing I did was sit back and just again, prayed that God would give me eyes to see. It's the same prayer King Solomon. Just give me wisdom. Just give me wisdom. Give me discernment. And so I watched a lot and saw that there were a few people in the church that I know had a good heart and that had the right vision. And it doesn't have to be all young people. The guy who's the biggest proponent of change in this church, his name's Gerald McCormick, and he's been at this church since the 70s. And he, he so I, I found, I located him pretty early on and a few other people that had the influence. And those are the people that I needed to win over because if Gerald stood in front of the church and said, the changes he's making, I don't necessarily like, but I trust this guy. He's a man of God and he's the anointed one that God has put in charge of this church. Let's let him carry out the vision that God's given him. And so that was huge early on. So find out who has the influence and get them on your side. And that's just very practical. The other thing that I did, and I don't know if this is true of everybody, but I did what a lot of guys do when they come into ministry. I tried to bring talent in. So, you know, I know just from my years of experience of different guys at different churches. And so I tried to recruit them. And I thought, if I can only get this person to move here to Hendersonville, then we'll, we'll kill it. If I can only get this person to come in here. And so I started trying to do that. Problem is, I don't have any money. And so that's usually a deterrent from getting people to move. And, and, uh, <laughs> and so, but I also didn't have a whole lot of success. I mean, the church, it continued to shrink for six, eight months after I got here. And those were tough times. And I felt like for me, one time when I was, I really leaned into God. And I was here in this building and there was no one else here. We were shut down for COVID and God gave me the story. And I don't use that term lightly of Nehemiah. And I felt like this city was once this great city and all of it had come tearing. It was tore down and there was just rubble. And, and Nehemiah was minding his own business in the palace. Now he was a cupbearer. But that means that the king put him in the nicest clothes. He got to drink the nicest wine. I'm sure he smelled good and had all the great cologne and access to it. He had a good life. And he overheard his people saying how desperate they were and how bad things were. And so he gave up the palace to go back to the pit and to help people who needed it. And it wasn't as glamorous as being in the, you know, the area of the king or the palace of the king but he knew those people needed help. And that was really what I viewed my journey here. And then here's the secret. And this will kind of wrap up with what we were talking about here. When he rebuilt the wall and in particular, the city gate, he didn't bring in shiny new materials. He didn't have brought in new gold and pearls and all this new stone. He used the rubble that had been laying there for years that people had just walked over and discarded and cast aside as worthless. It used to be a badge of shame. And that's what Nehemiah used to rebuild the city gate and the walls even better than they were. And that's what I felt God told me in this journey is you're looking at it all wrong. You're thinking, what kind of shiny new material can I bring in when really you should be looking at who's in front of you that no one has ever really poured into? And they've been walking over them and discarded them for a long time. So now here we are fast forward a year from around that time. So about, you know, maybe nine months ago from when I felt God gave me that. And the first two guys I hired were guys that were here before I got here and guys that were off to the side that were discarded, that were viewed as too young or too broken or, or, you know, they don't have a degree from seminary. So surely if they don't have reverend in front of their name, they can't be and so I really felt like that was it. So what I've done, not just from a hiring standpoint, is I have just poured into who's in front of me and located who the church had discarded and just poured gasoline on that spiritual fire. And to see those men and women now where they were a year ago and where they are now as wives, as husbands, 
as leaders in the church has been an amazing experience. So who's in front of you? Now, what does God want to do with those people first? That would be what I would say. Don't think that the answer is from the outside. Oftentimes it's right in front of you. You just have to be faithful with it. Yeah, that's great. You told me something last week I thought was uh, is interesting. You talked about, uh, I think you used the term like evening out, even out the ticket, right? And you said for most people, like the pastor has, your sort of sphere of influence goes, um, you know, for the people 10 years older than you or 10 years younger than you. Those are generally the people that you're relating to. You're in similar, you know, styles of life or whatever, uh, stages of life. Uh, And you talked about you need to find, sometimes you need to find some people older beyond that because they're going to have better, um, they're going to be able to influence, you know, people who are older than you. And then on the same in the same vein, you need to find p- people who are, you know, 10, 15 years younger than you so that they can influence people younger than you. Uh, talk about maybe some of the ways that you did that as well. Yeah, no. So if you are in kind of an elite pastor role or a campus pastor, or if you're on stage or in leadership, you have 10 years older than you and 10 years younger than you is your sweet spot of who you're going to influence. And that's just, just metrics. And if you look at it, it actually makes sense. And so wherever you are on that scale, you don't necessarily need to hire, but you need to put people in position of influence that balance you out. And I use balance the ticket because I'm a former history teacher. I can't help it. You know, I think about JFK and, and he picked uh, Roosevelt as his, as his vice president so that he could carry Texas because he knew that he needed Southerners and he needed to carry Texas. So he picked it, you know, like that's what you do. You pick a vice president or at least most of the time that will help reach a group of people that you can't by yourself reach. And so I wanted to do that with influence. I mentioned Gerald, 77 years old. I put him on stage. I have him do offertory music sometimes, lead communion sometimes. If we ever do funny intro videos for sermon series, he's always there. Our entire production room, which I'm in right now, which is why it's a mess if you're watching this video. If you're listening, you have no idea, which is great, uh, is all ran by a 14-year-old. And so our high schoolers are up there running that. So he doesn't have to be on stage, but he's in a position of influence because even when, you know, quote unquote, grownups come to serve on our production team, they see a 14-year-old is the one that's calling the shots and telling them where they are and sending them, you know, a message during the week. Hey, you're going to be on camera too. Make sure you watch this, blah, blah, blah. And so already now by a 14-year-old and by a 77-year-old, I've reached a huge demographic of people. I also think that that can be true with gender. And I also think an area we got to look at is ethnicities. And so we want to try to find people that represent what heaven's going to look like. Mm -hmm. And so I want to make sure that it is a heterogeneous group and that they all have different types of skill sets and different areas of influence. Let me uh, flip the script for a second. We're talking about revitalization. Why is this something, Travis? Let me interview you for a second. <laughs> That's on your heart. That's important. Yeah. Why does the General Baptist denomination want to focus on this, and, and why do you care? Yeah, I care. That's a great question. Thanks uh, Thanks for doing that. Uh, I care tremendously because, uh, for one, I, I wasn't a person. I, I grew up in a small town. We're in uh, Westmoreland, Tennessee, uh, about an hour north of Nashville, probably uh, 30 minutes north of you. And, uh, I've been up before. About two minutes as I was driving through. Yeah, that, that's all it is. That all it, that's all it takes. <laughs> and so I grew up in this small town and never went to church, which is we're in the Bible Belt. So it's a, I was a little out of the ordinary or whatever. Um, but at 20 years old, somebody invited me to one of these kind of small town churches, one of these little uh, churches, backwoods in the middle of nowhere, right, um, outside of West Wallen, and uh, gave my life to Christ. Like heard one message, God spoke to me, just like no doubt about it, you know, broke my heart in that moment and and spoke to me. And then from then on, I was just, I just loved every part of it. Like, and it's, it's weird. I'll tell people sometimes it was like, it's God flipped a switch in me. Um, and it, it was, my life was turned upside down. And so I loved being a part of these churches and even these little backwoods churches, right? And those are the places that I initially got the first opportunities to serve in, to speak in. Um, when I had no business speaking in these places, like I was so nervous. I remember all these times and I'm thinking like, why in the world uh, would you put me in these spots? Like I, I taught um, at one of these little General Baptist churches. I taught at one of the, uh, like the senior adult um, Sunday school class. And I thought, I should not be teaching this class. I know nothing about it. And so I would just spend, you know, 30 minutes just asking them questions uh, so I could learn from them. 
And, and so just, you know, moving forward, it was, and, and then I met my wife. We, uh, we ended up getting married. I go to this new church plant that she's going to within our, within our town. And again, God just kept using me and, and just, I just figured out like, Every step of the way uh, over the months and the years, like God would kind of show me, here's how I've gifted you. Um, and, and it took me a while to figure out, all right, here's kind of like your sweet spot. But when I did, it, it was amazing. It was tremendous. And so I was like, oh, like there, I can I can do systems and I can do strategies and I can do marketing and I can do all this type of stuff to like get people to come to church. How cool is that? Uh, and then we get to see people baptized and uh, just all these people coming to know Christ. Uh, and it was amazing. And I thought, how cool is this um, that it's taking place here? But, but in reality, um, there's really nothing special about our church. Like there, there's nothing special about me necessarily other than what, you know, how God gifted me or whatever. But like this could take place at any church. Like every church should be experiencing this. And so uh, I've seen it happen. Like I, I've been a part of it. And so I want to help other churches who are uh, in a place where they're struggling, in a place where they feel stuck, in a place where they feel like, you know what, we're outside of town. No one's noticing us anymore or anything like that. And they sort of uh, feel like, you know, God's forgot about them. I want to say, you know what, you can, you can experience everything that God has for you again. Like you can accomplish that mission that God's given you, that vision that God's given you. There are still people within your community, within your little town. Uh, there's families that need you. There's, there's uh, you know, teenagers like me that grew up not knowing anything about church. They, their parents weren't taking them to church, and they're going to get an invite from somebody one day and get to hear the gospel. Uh, your church can be a part of that again, and that's why I'm so passionate about revitalization and like I, because— I've experienced it, and I've seen what a uh, huge impact. I mean, it's, it, it uh, changed my life, right? And so I want to see that for more and more people. And so, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's my answer to that one. It's a fantastic answer. So how many churches are we, mm -hmm. the General Baptist denomination, planting per year? Mm -hmm. And then how many are you projecting? Well, let's just start with that. How many churches per year on average in the United States are we planting? Yeah, just from a planting standpoint, um, probably two, three, not near enough is what we're currently planting. Well, that's always the answer. Not yeah, enough. Not enough. <laughs> and that's one of the, another one of the reasons that I'm like, hey, revitalization is a great answer because we have hundreds of churches. Um, just some of them just need to figure out, okay, how can we get back on the right track? And so um, it's not an either or, of course. It's, hey, we want to plant churches and we want to revitalize churches. I think that, yeah, the answer is and, but if we're planting two to three per year, just church in general and Western civilization is on the decline. Mm -hmm. And if we are losing more churches than we're planting, I mean, we're saving nickels and losing quarters here at this point, right? Right. And so I think that revitalization of these churches is going to be massively important. And I'm thankful that guys like you and Pastor Danny are pushing this agenda now. And agenda is mm -hmm. probably the wrong word, but are making this important. And put it to the forefront. This isn't something that I ever thought I was passionate about. I, before I came here, was expecting to plant my own church one day. And the reason is, is because they tell you to plant your own church because from the very beginning, you can set the culture, you can set the vision, people are called to you. And I think all of that stuff is true. And church planting has its own separate difficulties for sure. Because I can hear like the church planting guys being like, oh, you have no idea. You know, right. I get all of that. I was a campus pastor as well, trying to plant a new campus in a town. So I, I understand some of that. But I think that the local church that is established already is also incredibly important. I was reading the other day in Exodus, and it's when all of the different plagues are coming upon them. And there's the plague of darkness. I actually have this pulled up. I want to share if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. You gave a pastor a live mic, so what do you expect? <laughs> I'm going to pass the offering plate next. Um, Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. And this is the plague of darkness. You're familiar with this, mm -hmm. but I want you to, to hear this through the idea of the importance of the local church. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. Well, I mean, he's like dark, like it's going to be dark, no night lights, nothing. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. And then here's the whole thing. Yet, all of the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. 
My goodness, that right there shows you the importance of the local church because we are in a dark world. Anybody will tell you that. Even atheists will tell you that. Yeah. And so I think that these local churches that are even in these itty-bitty towns like Westmoreland, which I love Westmoreland. I think it's great. Actually, that's where Gerald is from. Yeah. Uh, so Westmoreland's own, Gerald McCormick. But I think these are all the, the homes where there can be light in this area. And so if you link that to the Old Testament after Jesus is on the cross and after his earthly death, the whole world, the whole earth goes dark. And I would imagine at that time or shortly after that time, it's ringing in their ears when Jesus said, no, no, you are the light of the world, the city on the hill that cannot be hidden. Then I think that connects it to this plague. And so church revitalization is massively important because that is the pockets of light in the dark world, in these little communities. And the local church is the hope of the world. So it's very easy when you're a small church to think that only the favor of God rests on these mega churches. But again, I'll, I'll, I'll end it with what I started it with. God, I believe, this is just Jason, it's not canon, it's just Jason, believe that God isn't going to take a pastor and compare their inheritance with what another mega pastor's number is. I think he's going to, your inheritance is going to be based upon, are you faithful with what's been put in front of you? Are you faithful with what I have called you to do? So the mega church pastors are no more important than the pastors that have 30 people. And these local churches are, are massively important. So let me ask you one last question, then I'll let you get back to, to interviewing me. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but I just... I think you have something to contribute to this episode as well. And you have more experience than I do and uh, significantly more facial hair than I have <laughs> uh, for those of you watching. Um, what are some things that you've seen in your experience are common denominators amongst churches that need this revitalization according to you guys, your data and what you've studied? From a common denominators from what can turn things around or from where they're at right now? What has got them into a state where revitalization is necessary? Because if we can, yeah. if we can uh, identify those common denominators, we can then identify what to do to start kind of turning around this cruise ship that is a church. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that like every church, when church when churches are planted, they're all all planted whether it's five years ago or if it was fifty years ago or one hundred and fifty years ago. Uh, Whenever they were planted, they were planted by a, a pastor, or perhaps it's a group of people who were working together in it with a passion uh, to reach the lost. Right? That there was that that passion. There was, hey, we're starting a church because our community needs Jesus, and and so that's what they set out to do. But over time, what always happens, and it's it's almost it's every church, it's probably every organization. Over time, everybody turns from, hey, we exist for the outsider and we exist for those who aren't here yet. Everyone, it's just a natural thing that we become insider-focused. And so they start to become insider-focused. It's uh, less about reaching those outside of the church and more about pleasing those inside the church. And so it's about, you know, um, here's the way we've always done it, or so-and-so gave this, and so, you know, we can't remove that, or we can't do it this way because this would hurt somebody's feelings. Um, and it's and we forget the mission. I think that's the biggest part of it. I think uh, we forget the mission. We replace it with something else, um, and we lose sight of what's really important. And what Jesus was very, very, you know, clear about it. Here's the here's the you know great commission: uh, go into all the world. Uh, we're supposed to go out. We're supposed to be outward focused. And so I think uh, I think the biggest thing is that when churches become inward focused, and it's about all about their sort of. Um, traditions and their preferences, um, that, that's, that's what causes them to um, falter and causes them to shrink um, because they quit looking outside because they're too busy focusing on themselves. Mm -hmm. No, you got it. All right. I'll let you go back to interviewing me. <laughs> Hey, uh, just a couple. I think this should be reversed, though. You, you know a lot more about this than I do. It's fun. We'll do this again sometimes. But uh, let, me, let me just uh, jump ahead a little bit because – Again, your story is an incredible story. Um, you know, jumping into a, a struggling church that that probably was, uh, you would say, it was probably kind of that church, right? Was they probably forgot their mission? They hadn't had a fresh vision. They needed it. Uh, they'd got down to, they dwindled down to, 
you know, 30 people. Um, and from where you took it, it just in the last year and a half, and I'll, I'll let you talk about that uh, and what, what God has done. Um, like, just tell us where you are now and then tell us where you're going and what you're saying. Hey, here's some areas that I still think we need to improve on, and here's what I still think that God wants to accomplish through this church. Yeah, so there's a, few, a couple things that you have to look at when you are creating a weekend experience you've got to figure out what does this look like for somebody who walks in that either has no idea who Jesus is or it's, they're unchurched or de-churched or, my goodness, I have two people right now that were just here on Sunday that have both looked me in the eye and said, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, but I think that you are authentic in what you believe and I want to hear more of it. And the people here are very nice to us. So we're going to keep coming, but just want to let you know, preacher man, we don't believe in what you're saying. And I'm like, eh, I'm not worried about that. An atheist is an easy convert, actually. Uh, it's the lukewarm Christians that are difficult. But anyways, uh, I think that what we have to do is look at everything on our campus as part of our, our experience, weekend experience or Sunday service or whatever your, your organization calls it. What does it look like for them? Because if they don't feel comfortable coming in right away, they will not be available or open to hear the gospel. You have to look at it like a restaurant. You're going to go to a restaurant, and if the lobby is completely dirty and cluttered and outdated, and you, the lobby of the restaurant, not your church, but maybe your church, and if the service is rude, no one greets them at the door, and the plate they bring the food on is dirty and gross and filthy, and, and everybody's looking at you, and you're the only one dressed differently, you're not going to come back to that restaurant. In fact, you may not even wait till that steak gets brought to your, your table. And so what I want to do is I want to create an environment in which people who are far from God will still feel they will still be attracted to the place because of our excellence and everything we do. I want that floor to be the cleanest floor of any place they've gone into that week because we're, we're children of God. So everything should be done with excellence. Now, that doesn't mean you have smoke machines and lights, and those aren't the churches, the only things that grow at church. And I don't even know if they grow at church. I think that even if you're out in the middle of nowhere, if you are presenting them with the authentic Jesus, people will come. They went out to the Judean desert to hear John the Baptist. That wasn't a convenient trip. So, But I want by the time that the gospel is presented, they already feel so comfortable and loved and accepted that they are open and they have ears to hear that God can then, through an anointed message, change their heart so that we actually have that regeneration, so that we actually have that. And that's going to take some time. And so it was very important for me early on to look around and say, man, we're, we're going to have to make some changes. And some of them you may not be comfortable with, but here's why. I wish that I would have done it, honestly, Travis, a little bit slower. I came in knowing that we needed the changes, but I didn't do a good enough job taking the time to explain the why to the people that were here. And I was kind of like a bull in a china shop. And they stayed but I think I could have served them a little bit better if I would have taken the time to go get a cup of coffee and have the conversation why I'm taking down this purple velvet banner with the Ten Commandments hanging up on the wall that your Aunt Mildred, Mildred donated money for. Because instead, I just dismissed it like, oh, come on, you'll be fine. That's stupid. Let's just take that down. And that was uh, where I've grown in my, my journey. I wish I could go back and explain to them the why. I mean, like my aunt Mildred, she donated that. Great. Take it down and give it back to her. It's hers. You know, she can hang it up in her living room. <laughs> That's terrible. But I, but I would have taken the, the, the time to really say why. And so what we have done is we have been outward focused, as you just said. So this place ain't a cruise ship. We're not going to put on stuff that just you like. And I get that you paid for it. But the best thing that I can do to help people who have donated a lot of money to the church and given a lot more is to fill this place up. That's the greatest legacy of the money that you've given. If you donated something that was, I'm getting fired up now, that, you know, decorated something back in the 80s, the greatest, the greatest thing that I can do for that person that donated that money is not leave it up on the wall, is to pack this place out because you invested in this place. And I want you to get interest here. I don't want it to just be, you know, some low-level stock that never goes up or down and, and doesn't give you a dividend. I want that money that you put in here, even though, you know, you when you're in heaven, 
you're still seeing dividends come in, cha-ching, 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 inheritance. So we've got to get back to understanding the why. Why are we here? And what is our job? Our job is to do two things. My job personally is to serve the congregation, to give them the word of God, but also equip them for the work of the saints. And so if I can do both of those simultaneously, I will. Sunday mornings, I've taught our people, and this isn't like the algorithm for success, but it's what's worked for us. I've taught them that Sunday mornings isn't for us. This is for all of us to go reach people. And then we have what we call connect groups and we have Wednesday night service and we have that, that is for you. So during the week, I am going to do everything I can to give you strong, deep meat and spiritual truths and a place to serve and a place to have the type of worship music you like. But Sunday morning, man, that's our outreach time. So if you've been here for 30 years, that's awesome. I need you here on Sunday, but I need you out in the parking lot smiling as people come on campus. I need you serving in the nursery so that these people who are far from God have a place to drop their kids off and they can come in hopes of getting saved, you know, salvation. Mm -hmm. And so it was really important for us to, to do, to do those particular things. I don't know if that answers your question, but um, there's some decent stuff in there. Yeah, it's good. I was thinking when you're talking about that, I think sometimes people, you know, when we talk about church growth or health or revitalization, whatever it might be, some people automatically assume, oh, you just want me to look like the mega church. Like, you just want me to add the fog machine and the lights and to play that certain type of music, and that's not the case at all. Um, there's a church that uh, came planted in our community. Uh, it's, like, just down the road from us, actually, uh, a couple years ago. Uh, I, the the, uh, the couple that planted there actually used to go to our church, and their church looks completely different from our church, and yet they're very, very successful uh, because it's not about how you do um, you know, the music or the lights, or it's not about that. It's about how you love people. I think we forget about that. So, so whether it's wherever you are, we're not telling you, um, we're not telling you here's exactly how you have to do it. Right. And there are some things that may work better in certain situations or not, but the biggest thing is how you love people and not just people within inside your church, but how you love the people within your community who have yet to come to your church. And I think that's what it's the heart of it. Right. Uh, in the beginning of strong tower church where I, I'm a pastor at, um, that was the case for us. It was just, you know, we met in a storefront building. We didn't have very much, um, and yet we just loved people. And, and that was the biggest That was the biggest thing. It just set the culture for everything that we did from there on. Uh, and so uh, if you're thinking about, you know, what these guys are just talking about, you know, you got to make my church look this certain way or whatever, and we got to play these uh, certain music, and you are going to get rid of hymns or, or whatever it might be, um, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, we're just talking about, like, loving people right? And loving people outside of your church enough to say that, you know what, I love them so much and I want them to experience Jesus so much and salvation. Uh, I want them to experience that so much that I'm willing to give up my preferences. And so if that means we have to play or need to play a different type of music, that's fine. Or if it means we needed people to volunteer in the parking lot or in the nursery, that's fine. Let me be one of those people. Um, but it's, it's about loving people enough that, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice my preferences uh, for the betterment so that somebody else can meet Jesus. I want to ask you one That's last exactly question. Right. Yeah. Sure. Let me just, let me, let me piggyback on that real yeah. quick and then I'll be done. Um, I think you're exactly right. We don't have a hazer machine or a fog machine at our church. I don't have any lights that can actually move. They're all just stationary. I mean, I wish I did, but maybe one day. So yeah, I think you're exactly right. When some people are listening to this and they're like, man, I, that's not how I think church should be. I get it. You'll reach different groups of people with different types of things. We don't have any of that, but giving up, your preference for the purpose is a spiritually mature characteristic. Don't, don't mix age with spiritual maturity. Uh, I've seen, you know, you, you see some 15, 16, 17 year olds that are more spiritually mature than people that have been walking with God for 40 years. Uh, so don't, don't, but, but putting the, your preference, putting the purpose over the preference is a spiritually mature thing. So if right away, when you start hearing stuff about giving up your preference, if you start to already come up, even as you're listening to this in your mind with what your argument is going to be or like, oh, yeah, but what? Really stop and just ask yourself for a moment, you know, what would God want and, and, and what would it look like? And if I'm starting to get angry and feel like myself become defensive about what the church looks like, is it something that is worth looking inward? And here, here's a great example. There are some worship songs that I don't like. I don't know if they're just, I know that sounds terrible, but like either I think that they're theologically inaccurate or just kind of stupid, or they have some different types of 
phrases that I'm like, eh, I don't really know. That's kind of weird. Uh, uh, for example, a sloppy wet kiss, you know what I'm talking about? I'm like, I don't really know about that. You know, and there's some songs that just musically I like, you know, better than others. Uh, and by the way, sidebar, we do sing at least one hymn a week at our church as well, so that we can be multi-generational and hit a de demographic of people, but sidebar over, but come back a real minute. We, we had um, the worship, this one worship song, there's one in particular, I won't say what it is. It was huge a couple of years ago. I never liked it. And it came on the radio and my two daughters, seven and nine years old, I see them in the rearview mirror and hear them just singing their guts out. Now, one of them is raising her hands. Clearly, she's not a Baptist. Just kidding. <laughs> raising her hand. And she's, you know, just really honestly pouring her heart out to God. And that's when my mindset shifted on that particular song because I thought, I don't really like it. But as a father, I'm going to do whatever I can to, to have my daughters continue the experience that they just had to God. I've been walking with God since I was in eighth grade. So it's not about me anymore. My job is to raise my children. So whether I prefer that song or not, if God is using it to speak to them, who am I to say don't sing that anymore? So when you put it in those types of terms, I think it really, um, I don't know, it makes it more practical of an example of what it looks like to be a spiritually mature person and say, it ain't about me anymore. It's about reaching them. It's about reaching the generation behind us so that don't, we don't become Joshua. We did great things. And it said, but the generation behind them knew not the God of Israel and they worshiped the gods of Baal and God was against them. Yeah. That's, that's scary. We need to be aware of that as a church. Ooh, that's a sermon right there, my friend. All right, we can wrap up. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, I don't think we need to add anything. That's That was beautiful. Um, I totally agree. I want to say thanks so much uh, for being on the podcast today. Thanks very much uh, just for sharing your time. Uh, I want to continue this conversation with you because I love talking about this stuff with you. And so we'll get together and we'll do this again sometime. We'll ask Gerald to come and hang out with us too. And so uh, that'll go. be fun. But uh, again, hey, thanks so much for uh, being a part. And, uh, you know, I wish you well. Uh, just pray that God continues to bless what you're doing there and uh, uses um, what God's doing there just as an example of what's possible at every church, um, that God can take something that's broken, that feels stuck, and God can build something beautiful out of it. So oh, thanks. That's what God does, man. That's his MO. So what a privilege it is to be a part of this journey. I appreciate the opportunity. Wow. What a great conversation. I want to thank Travis and Jason for sharing their thoughts on this episode. I hope that you were encouraged and challenged by what they said. Be on the lookout for what we have coming in church revitalization. Jesus promised to build his church, and we want to see that among General Baptist churches for years to come. In the next episode, we will be talking about leadership and church culture with Carl Nichols, the lead pastor of Relevant Church in Locust Grove, Georgia. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us and leave us a review. It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening. We will see you on the next episode of Doing Together.